Let's bow our heads for prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather this morning in your name. We thank you that you are our Lord, our King. We do want to come before you in humility, to worship you, to hear from you. Lord, we desire to know what your will is for us, and we want to listen as your word is preached. Pray that you bless Brother Mel as he brings this message this morning. May you give him strength, courage, wisdom, clear mind to deliver what you have laid upon his heart, and that the truth of your word could be made known. And bless our our service here, our time together, that we could encourage each other and lift each other up. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Good morning and welcome. Welcome to each one here. See the house is well filled. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your prayers. Certainly uh, good to be here. Like someone said earlier, nice and warm, kind of cool and chilly outside. So this morning, I'd like to ask you a question, which is the title, how should we then live? Now, you may recognize that as a title of the book, which it is. Francis Schaeffer was his name, and I'm not promoting the book. I don't even, never read it. But his title does kind of fit my, the text and uh, the content for this morning. So I'm only borrowing his title this morning. Um, and let your attention to Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 12 through 18. And this was Paul who wrote this to the Church of Philippi. And you'll recall he had, he had an incident there in Philippi. He was, of course, in, in prison that one night. Him and, who was it, Silas, I think it was, they were locked in prison, put in stocks, put in a very uh, uncomfortable position. In the inner prison, probably what we would call solitary confinement, even though they weren't alone, with a lot of guards around them when God miraculously delivered them. Their shackles fell off and the door swung open and they walked out. So that's, that was probably Paul's introduction to Philippi, which was from what I read from other uh, writers, commentators, uh, uh, an immoral place, a, uh, a lot of sin, as, as Paul just makes a brief description of that right here. Let's read Philippians 2, start in verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. 
Yea, and if I be offered up upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. And that's as far as I've chosen to read. He says that they were living in this crooked and perverse nation. Um, and I'm not quite sure exactly um, what he was referring to. But if we look at some of these other references, you get a bit of a, 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 a vision of that. We're going to look into that a little bit later. But I'd like to look at this word crooked and perverse. Crooked has the idea of curved and warped, something that you want straight, something that needs to be straight, but it's twisted, it's warped. You contractors know what it's like. You're trying to frame up a doorway opening. You're looking for a nice couple of nice straight two-by-fours, and you can't find them. They're all twisted and warped. After they get dried out, they're hard to straighten out. Maybe if they're green, you can do it, but it's hard to straighten out a piece of lumber that's partially dried and has already kind of found its way, its own way. Perverse means distorted and corrupt to turn aside from the right path. They're very similar in meaning and definition. And of course, if you think if you see that, think of that defi those definitions, it's all around us. It's evident in every, most every part of our, our society as it must have been then, too. We see this in business, in medicine, in politics, in our educational system, it's everywhere. It's just, there, there seems to be that moral compass that is just sort of disappearing. There's not much of a moral basis or compass anymore. It seems that way. In this type of uh, environment, how should we then live? Turn with me to Romans chapter 1, and I want to get a bit of a glimpse of, of uh, this is again Paul writing this. This is a different community, of course, and he describes their where, where they were, and I had to think, well, that fits our description pretty good nowadays, doesn't it? Let's read Romans chapter 1, start in verse 20, and we'll read down to the end of verse 28. Romans 1, verse 20. For the invisible things of him from creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, into birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worship and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile, affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. Likewise also the man having the natural use of the woman 
woman burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of the error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are, which are not convenient, being filled with all kinds of other evil and ungodly activities. And that sentence doesn't end till the end of the chapter, by the way. I'm gonna stop there. But as I was reading this, I had to think of, if you've ever found yourself in a place, maybe a mall or a state park, you've got this great big billboard map and way down here in the corner is a little star that says, you are here. That's kind of the feeling I got when I was reading this. You are here. This is Paul writing in his day in Rome, but doesn't that sound familiar? Some of the things that we just read. Follow with me in this downward spiral. Beginning right there in verse uh, 20, it says that the things that are out there are clearly seen so that we are, they are without excuse. Starts with verse 21, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. A self-seeking idolatrous person has no reason to be thankful because he worships himself. It's just all about himself, herself. That's a self-seeking idolatrous person. That's one idol. They worshiped, verse 25, and served the creature. Who's the creature? Anyone? We're all creatures. We're all creatures. We were created. And of course, everything else that you see, every living being, we're all creatures. They worshiped and served the creature. Again, themselves, man. The next step we see, and we see, we saw this in our country. Some of the younger, younger generation wouldn't remember, but us older ones remember the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s. All of a sudden there was just, it was just, there was no bounds. It was just whatever, whatever you wanted. And then later on, 90s and 2000s, we see this homosexual revolution. And today we are into this transsexual revolution. Look at, look at some of the descriptions here. Some of these things, first of all, he talks about verse 24, the dishonoring their own bodies to themselves. That's where it starts. 26, totally against nature. Makes no sense, no good reason to do some of these things. And then, then of course, 28, God gave them over to this reprobate mind. Remember what happened to Pharaoh in Egypt? God warned him, or through Moses, no, God gave Moses a heads up and said, this is what's going to happen. He's not going to let you go, and I'm going to turn his heart against me. I'm going to change his mind to where he can't even think straight anymore. And I don't have time to go into that, and that's exactly what happened. God worked in Pharaoh's heart, and through Pharaoh, he destroyed his own country. 
If you ever want an interesting study, look into the 10 plagues, and it looks like it was a whole year of ruined harvest, just a totally trashed economy because of his hard heart. God brought it on him. That's what God did to Pharaoh. And so that's what, sort of what I see happening today. That's what Paul was seeing here in, in Philippi. You feel sometimes like that, this great big map, and you are here. That's, that's sort of where I, how I pictured myself in, in front of this big map. As I read through this chapter here in Romans 1, you are here. How should we then live? Let's keep going back to Philippians 2. Certainly a lot of good points that I want to keep focused here. Realizing that, yeah, we are here, our country, our culture, our community is here, but that doesn't leave us without hope and doesn't, shouldn't cause us to despair. He says right there in, in uh, verse, verse 12, he says, work out your own salvation. Now, before you get up in arms about this, he's not saying work for your salvation. He says work out your own salvation. This has the idea of harvesting a field or a garden, as Jim said this morning. Whatever, whatever you're harvesting, you want to maximize that harvest. You're going to do what you can to kill the bugs that are going to eat that fruit or vegetable. You're going to do what you can to keep the weeds down. You are going to work out that harvest yourself. You're going to do what you can. Has the idea of a farmer maximizing his harvest or maybe a mine that's completely mined out of all the valuable ore. That's what we are to do. Work out, not pour, but work out our salvation. You know, and, and he also says it's, it's God's divine power and energy that works in us. God must work in us before he can work through us. He keeps going here. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Just a few verses in, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power. And it goes on. It is God who works in and through us, his divine power and energy that works in and through us. And I, I, and I had to think of Moses, and I'd like to turn our attention to that. Uh, in Exodus chapter 2, we have the account of uh, Moses, of course, that, that, uh, that chapter, Exodus chapter 2, a lot is happening in that chapter. I think sometimes we sort of forget that there could very well have been 20 or 30 year time frame in that chapter. Well, maybe not 30. I'm not sure how old he would have been. But we have the beginning of the chapter starting with him being born. And, of course, he was uh, in, in an effort to save him. They would put him in this little boat and left him float down the river. And... The princess found him and adopted him and into the, as her own. So then we have we have um, 
right here in verse Exodus 2, 11 through 15. I'm going to read that. Now, this is where Moses is now an adult. He's a prince, remember? He's the king's son. So um, he would have had the best of everything, the best training, the best education, the best upbringing, whatever was in their culture. He had it, the best of it. Verse 11, it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their brethren and he spied an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, one of his brethren. Apparently he knew he was a Hebrew boy. And of course, apparently had a bit of a soft spot, spot in his heart for them. He was not quite the dyed in the wool Egyptian as his adopted father probably would have wanted him. Verse 12, and he looked this way and that way and when he saw there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together, and he said to him that did the wrong, Wherefore smitest thou thy fellow? And he said, Who may be a prince and a judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killedst the Egyptian? Uh oh, whoa, here, we got a problem here. Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. Now, when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses, but Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down. By the well. So here we have Moses trying to straighten things out on his own. Now, God had not yet called him. God had not yet spoke to him. But this was Moses doing what he thought was right with the resources and whatever he had to do that. Now, we don't know what kind of a weapon or tool he used to kill this man, but he did. I expect he was, if being a prince, he would have certainly had some military training. And, and uh, so anyways, he took things in his own hands to try and straighten things out. <clears throat> Bad idea. He found himself on the run. A prince on the run, running for his life. <clears throat> Let's move on. We have then in... Um, the next chapter, Exodus 3, and this is where God meets him as he was out being a shepherd boy. Interesting side note, the Egyptians didn't like shepherds. They were low life to the shepherds. I imagine it took Moses a while to get over this. You remember when Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt to Joseph was ruler and he, they moved down there? They were instructed by some insider that you tell Pharaoh, this is to, to, to J Joseph's brothers, that we're, we keep livestock. Don't tell them you're shepherds. And it slipped up, and of course, somehow it leaked out, and they told Pharaoh that we're shepherds, real innocent light. And uh, just a bit of a side note, Egyptians don't like shepherds. It was, it was just a low-down job. So here we have this former prince Take a look at that, verse 1. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even Horeb. He was watching someone else's sheep, not even his own, didn't even have his own flock. He was a shepherd, no less. Had to overcome, probably overcome that uh, hurdle, that, that baggage that he had from the past of shepherds being low life. And here he is on the backside of the desert, not the seashore, not the, not, not the, the, the back, meaning it's opposite the seashore, in a desert, watching someone else's sheep. 
you talk about a couple steps backwards. That was where Moses was. But I think God in his sovereignty certainly very likely planned this, instituted this, and, and, and that's where Moses was. That's where he had to be to be able to hear God and accept God's message. So we have, we have him here now, God speaking to him and assigning him a very huge task, some way over his head. Moving on down to verse 7, just a bit of an introduction. God is telling him that I have seen the affliction of my people and I've heard their cry and I know their sorrows, he says. And so I want you to lead them out of Egypt. Well, from going to being a despised shepherd to being called by God to lead his people out. And of course, we, we know Moses resisted that. Verse 11, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? Well, I'm thinking, who better equipped? You're a former prince. Sure, you know the language, you know the culture, you know their practices. In my opinion, who would be better equipped than Moses? That's not how he thought. He was looking for excuses. Let's keep going. Notice with me several of these cases where God, God is speaking to him. God introduces himself in verse 14. I am that I am. That means I am Jehovah God, the God of all gods, uh, the, the God of, yeah, the God of all gods who will someday squash all the other gods. That's who I am. I am hath sent you. That's what you're to tell the people. God also tells him in verse 12, I will be with thee. Uh, in verse 17, I will bring you out of the affliction of, of all this. Verse 20, I will stretch out my hand and, and smite Egypt. This is God speaking. Verse 21 and 22, I will give this people favor and ye shall spoil the Egyptians. Seems to me that should have convinced him. Like I said, it's in my opinion, he had a lot of advantages with his upbringing, his background, <clears throat> and all these promises from God, these I will promises from God. Now, maybe at that point he hadn't develop a very close relationship with God. We're not sure. But just this meeting, this chance meeting, if you will, in the desert, finding this bush that was on fire and yet the bush wasn't burnt up. And uh, again, God <coughs> introduced himself and gave him this charge. You know, Moses in his early life, tried very hard protecting his, his people with the tools and the skills that he had. And yet, if you follow this, I'm not going to go too much further in here, but uh, after God called him and convinced him that, yes, I will be with you and you will have divine powers and you will be able to do this with some negotiation and he got his brother dragged in on this too, but we'll notice in, uh, in chapter 4, 
he, he has this rod. And all shepherds had a rod. A shepherd's rod was nothing more than a, a sapling. It was a tree that they would have dug out and carved the root ball to fit his hand. And it was a very personal, um, yeah, personalized tool that he would have used. It was obviously a walking stick. It would have been uh, maybe a counting stick, you'll see. So you, 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 you heard that term, as they pass under the rod, they would count them as they pass under the rod. And he could also reverse it and use the root ball as a club. So it was a very multi-use tool, we would say. <clears throat> Nothing more than a branch, if you will, a sapling, a tree. And yet, if you look in chapter 4, when God approaches him about this, verse 3, he said, what's in your hand? And he said, a rod. Yeah, this stick or a branch. And, of course, we know the story. He, God worked through him, and this stick became a snake, and... Uh, ate the other sticks that were there. So we see that God certainly is able <clears throat> with some very common, ordinary, everyday items to accomplish his will. And of course, follow that through. I'm not going to go through that. That rod went with, with Moses wherever he went. And in verse 20 of chapter 4, you'll notice it says, and Moses took the rod of God. And this is not just his rod, it was the rod of God. God had certainly um, empowered this rod to do some miraculous things. And so here we have Moses, <clears throat> as I say, trying to fix this problem, straighten out this fight between two people on his own and got in trouble, deep trouble, life-threatening trouble on to where God called him and anointed him, used him and his stick, if you will, to accomplish and to great things and, and leading Israel out of Egypt eventually. Turn back to Philippians chapter 2 again. So we have, we have that account of, <clears throat> of uh, Moses again um, working, as it were, working out his salvation. Okay, the next point I want to look at, we shine as lights in the world. You know, the world truly is a dark place that desperately needs light. You know, in this crooked and perverse world, we are to be harmless and blameless. After all, we are the sons of God. He tells us that right here. We are children of God. John 13, 35 says, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if ye have love one for another. The ultimate test of our commitment to each other and our commitment to Jesus Christ is our love for each other evident to those around us. Are we showing our love for one another? Do those around us see that? We shine as a light by not murmuring or complaining, even in this crooked and perverted world. And that's hard to do. That's easy to get caught up when someone starts whining about 
fuel prices, grocery prices, rent, whatever you have, it's easy to just join that person, isn't it? Now, I certainly haven't arrived either. But I think that certainly is, is, is a challenge to all of us, that we shine as a light by not complaining and murmuring about it. We are sons of God with a rich inheritance. And I just read that verse here in, in Ephesians 1, 18. And if you want a better picture of our inheritance, read 1 Corinthians 15 this afternoon. Uh, that's, that's a focus on the resurrection and the power and the blessing, uh, the inheritance that is, is ours. Um, and also in Revelation 21, 7, he that, in, he that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. This is speaking to overcomers, speaking of inheritance. I like that. I like that term. When you think of God uh, owning it all, then we will inherit that someday. <clears throat> How should we then live? We are to hold forth the word of life as he goes on hold forth the word of life in verse 16 that I may rejoice in the day of Christ and I have not run in vain neither labored in vain you know Jesus said I am the way the truth and the life you know the world offers empty promises Jesus offers eternal life <clears throat> we have as you all know this upcoming holiday that glamorizes bloodshed and death. Jesus came and conquered death so that we may have eternal life. Death without Christ in your life is not glamorous. Recently I had an advertising agency that wanted me to support their campaign for Halloween safety. And within in my mind I thought, really? You have this holiday that glamorizes bloodshed and death, and you want me to help advertise Halloween safety. I declined. You know, that's where our culture is. We also have the spirit of truth. John 14, 17 says that the world does not know, but we know him because he dwells within us. How should we then live? As a light to the world, holding forth the word of life. <clears throat> our words, our conversations, our dialogue with one another, or everyone, anyone, should speak life. You know, death is all around us. As I said, the world offer, offers empty promises, but Jesus offers eternal life. <clears throat> And then the last point, if, if you notice, Paul goes on into verse 17, there's an if there, an if. And if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. Paul was very likely awaiting his trial for the sake of Jesus Christ, and he could very well be executed because of this. But this did not rob him of his joy. Notice that. He mentions joy and rejoice twice in verse 17 and 18. 
his joy was not on his impending execution or his surroundings. If I be offered, I joy and rejoice. <clears throat> I, was, I was just thrilled with that. Um, certainly, we see, and, and I, I skipped reading over the first part of this chapter, which speaks of uh, Jesus and his example, and it basically sums up joy through submission. Jesus, like in verse 5, or verse 3 and 5, uh, he's, it speaks of a lowliness of mind, and then in verse 5, it describes that this mind being in, in also in Christ Jesus. Jesus was victorious because of his submission. He defeated hatred through love. He overcame lies with truth. Because he surrendered, he was victorious. May that be a challenge to us as well. We are all certainly, I'm sure, called to different uh, tasks in life. God has a different plan and a will for each of us. And I guess it's my, my um, prayer that each one would be faithful submissive to God's will. Only, as I said earlier, only as Jesus submitted to the Father's will was he able to be victorious. Luke 14, 11, for whosoever exalted himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. How should we then live? I'll leave that question with you as we go from here. I'm going to invite you for a closing prayer, and I didn't check, but I assume we'll pray for the meal, God's blessing on the meal, and uh, we'll get a signal when it's ready. Is that how it works again this time? Usually ring the bell, the Sunday school bell? Okay. Very well. Let's stand for a dismissal prayer, the blessing on the meal, and then we'll stand for the closing song by Ken. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your blessings on us this morning. Thank you that in this crooked and perverted world that we live, we certainly are not left hopeless and in despair. But you have given us some very specific instructions, some time-proven instructions, examples left by Jesus Christ himself. And I pray that you would help us, Father, to be mindful of how we live in our in this world realizing that we certainly have a lot to offer through you we pray lord that you would be able to work first in in us and then through us and we thank you so much for your holy spirit that dwells thank you for this spirit of truth that dwells within it within us during this time help us father to be able to to shine as a light in this dark world in which we live Give us the strength and courage to be able to hold forth the word of life. And we thank you that you, you have blessed us in this way. And if you call each, any of us, all of us, to a point of suffering, that you would give us grace and courage to remain true to you. We thank you especially for this gathering. Thank you especially for the bountiful harvest that we have. Father, you have blessed us beyond measure. Thank you for the food that has been prepared. And we pray your blessing on those that have so generously prepared and shared. 
may our fellowship be a blessing and encouragement to one another, and we pray your uh, blessing further as we dismiss. May we go with your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.